welcome to Rediscovery, a Star Trek Discovery recap podcast made with love and logic. I'm one of your hosts, Science Officer Ben McKenzie, and of course I'm here with my fearless captain, Carla Donnelly. How are you doing, Carla? I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm well too. I'm excited. It's still a week before the start of Star Trek Discovery Season 2, which starts dropping on Netflix for those of us outside the US from February 17 or February 18, if you're in Australia and live in the future. I was going to say, if you're in the future. The future. Um, but that just means we have one episode to remind ourselves of the amazingness that was Discovery Season 1. How are we going to do like a whole... We're going to have to compress it. I think we're going to have to focus on one or two things that we want to deep dive into. Yeah, I think we'll do that. But, you know, I, I have I have prepared, you know, a little summary of oh, the whole absolutely. season. Oh, yes, yes. And, and of course, major spoiler alerts for everyone for whole of season one. Yes. Um, obviously. And for each episode as we go. I mean, this is a it's a recap podcast. We're going to tell you what happens. So if you haven't seen it, you might want to watch it first and, and wait. But anyway, here we go. Here's what happened in Star Trek Discovery Season 1. I'm sitting up straight. Star Trek Discovery is set 10 years before the original Star Trek series and a century after Star Trek Enterprise. Commander Michael Burnham, a human raised by the Vulcan ambassador Sarek, serves as first officer aboard the starship Shenzhou under Captain Philippa Giorgio. They encounter a rebel sect of Klingons, and Michael tries to persuade Giorgio to fire first, as Klingons only respect strength. But her mutiny fails and she is court-martialed, and the Klingons begin a war with the Federation, killing Giorgio. Six months later, Michael is brought aboard the starship Discovery, captained by Gabriel Lorca and crewed by many of her old shipmates, and enlisted to help him in the fight against the Klingons. Thanks to scientist Paul Stamets, Discovery gets an experimental spore drive, which allows travel through an interdimensional mycelial network, giving it an edge in the war. But it turns out Lorca is evil and using them all to travel to a parallel universe which he is originally from. Dun-dun-dun. When the Discovery returns, minus evil Lorca, but with the Mirror Universe version of Giorgio in tow, they find they have missed nine months of the war. They sort it all out with the help of Michael's almost boyfriend Tyler, but he turns out to have been a Klingon in disguise all along. The da, da, da. war is ended, Michael is forgiven, and the Discovery needs a new captain. But that'll have to wait, because another ship has come to visit. Now, obviously, that's a, that's a real short... <laughs> Retelling. I've missed a lot of details in there, but it's quite a ride. That was excellent. Well uh, done. But what what are some of the things that you most loved about season one? Oh, look, general overview. I love that it's just, it feels like a fully realized version of the Star Trek universe. Yeah. In terms of the confluence of technology. I think like in the last episode, we talked about Voyager and I do agree with you that Next Gen was a slightly better show, but Voyager had that technology of being able to sort of realise quite a lot of other sort of more complex timelines and it to look a little bit less crap. Yeah. This is outstanding. Oh, and, yeah, it's like several yeah levels beyond that. And yeah. it feels like they can just really let rip in in the full extent of their imagination. How about yeah. you? Well, yeah, I, I feel like it's the same. I mean, you know, look, I'm a... And I said I wasn't going to mention this every episode, but I am an old school Doctor <laughs> Who fan, so so you know my ability to suspend my disbelief is pretty advanced. Okay, great. But yeah, I do like that. It, it feels to me some people that complain about how the technology looks so much more advanced in Discovery than it does in the original series when it's ten years earlier in the timeline, and I'm like, this is who wants that? If you were making Star <laughs> Trek now, this is what it would have looked like. Who like, wants that? Like they still pressed actual physical buttons. <laughs> Uh, in the original, and you're like, that's not how you'd build a starship in 200 years' time now. You, like, we can all imagine uh, touch screens and um, projections and all kinds of crazy stuff. And so, I, yeah, I, I, I like that too. I, I like that it looks 
it feels like it's in the future where it's very difficult to watch the original series and feel like it's in the future. And even, you know, Deep Space Nine, next gen era, it's a little like it, it does feel a bit futuristic because they got lucky with a few of their predictions. Sure. But, you know, when the thing that we use after an iPad comes out, it's going to feel real dated. <laughs> Um, whereas this feels, yeah, this feels like it's futuristic, you know. And, and that's where I do think they actually, they did make a lot of concessions to the original mm. series and yeah. really the, the world, like I've talked with you about this offline, but this, I don't even, why are they even using buttons? I don't even think that, yeah. you know, there's so much about it that you could pick apart, but why would you? Yeah. I did get all these like amazing little tingles and feels where you know they have all the original sounds Mm. in there of the technology like boo you know and i think they really did a great job of trying to sort of bridge that gap of the the old show and this show but speaking of it being in that era that's the thing that i actually love about this the most is that they've used this opportunity to set the show 10 years before the original show in this timeline so in the canon of the shows that we have, you know, it sort of goes Enterprise, now this, mm. then original, then TNG. And so they've used this opportunity to really insert the authority of women so much further mm. back into the timeline. So yeah. it kind of goes Archer, now Giorgio, then Kirk, you know, and I thought that that was a really beautiful touch. I'm not sure if it was entirely intended, but it mm-hmm. gave me a lot of feels. Yeah, no, I, that's that's a really good point. And it's obviously not just women either. Like there's a lot of other representation in Discovery that's been a long time coming to the Star Trek universe. Do you want to talk specifically about Discovery itself? About the show or about the ship? Because <laughs> I, well, I do like the ship. What do you, oh yes, we love the ship. It's science, just, uh, it's a science vessel. It, it, well, I love that in that first episode, uh, well, not first episode, it's the third episode, but the one where, you know, we first see the discovery inside and they identify it as a science vessel having coming, you know, just off the, it's like the brand new one. It's like one of the most advanced ships in the fleet, um, which also explains why, you know, in some ways it seems more advanced than the Enterprise, sure. which is already in service at this point and so is clearly older than discovery uh, but then they walk past a guard and they're like i don't why would you see so many military dudes on a science vessel mm-hmm. and you're like this is this is already interesting like i just really liked that from the get-go you're not quite sure what the deal is and i think that's actually really cool because this is where this show really pivots and especially in placing it in the timeline as well because we have a protagonist who's not a captain mm-hmm. we have a ship that's not the flagship ship of the armada essentially and also in all of the other shows we hear about the science vessels but they really seem kind of dark ops black ops it's always to save them out of like really crazy situations but they never show up unless like all the crew is dead because they've done something dumb right (laughs) which does happen also in discovery to be fair i mean the glenn has that fate (laughs) doesn't it so you know, but but that, yeah, we never see one as the main ship in a show. We never, we never get a peek of it. Yeah, unless it's you know absolute. So you always kind of get this kind of classified air of these ships, and they're also supposed to be off grid so that they're not destroyed or tailed by other 
alien races. So yeah. I love that it's a science vessel. Yeah, that is cool. That's cool. And it's also means there's so many science staff aboard in their fancy blue and silver uniforms, yes. <laughs> which I do enjoy. Uh-huh. Um, I, it's interesting to see that, you know, they, they're going to be seemingly phasing those out for uniforms that look a bit more like the original colours. Mm. We'll see what happens with that, I guess. Uh, but what else did you like about season one and the show? Well, queer representation is very important to me. So obviously I loved um, Stamets and Culver, but I also did not love that they suffered from, um, what is it, kill, hashtag kill your gays, yeah. which is, you know, whenever a gay character is introduced into a series, they die pretty much straight away. Doctor Who is notorious for this. <laughs> so, but we don't, there's kind of a question mark over that because the new posters have Hugh in it yeah he's in there so we don't know what's going on there and also obviously paul stamets is still alive but (laughs) who knows yeah yeah so i i I love that i love that being written into it though i'm disappointed that it has taken that trope as well what about you uh, I well, there's so many things. I uh, I really liked that they decided to tell like sort of one long ongoing story. It's quite different to what has been done in wow. Star Trek before. I never realized that. And I, I know I realized that it was like one thing, but I'm like I'd never had thought about that in terms of. I guess Voyager was the whole thing was that they were so far away, but yeah. it wasn't an ongoing. And I look, and that's strongest. And I think it's one of the things I really like about the first two seasons of Voyager is it feels much more like they don't forget that. But after you get to about season three or four, they kind of are just doing Adventure of the Week, except every now and then we remind you that we're a long way from home and we don't have many resources. Um, but it's still, you know, the adventure of the week. We meet these guys, we meet those guys, and we carry on. And there's not really consequences for what we did. Serialization. Yeah, it was very much that. And then that's all the Star Trek shows have been like that, which is great. Like it's a it's a wonderful format. I enjoy it. It means you can tell lots of different stories. I really like the way they they meshed that kind of stuff into a really ongoing storyline. Mm. So you do get different kinds of stories. Um, but they weave back into the main plot. And occasionally you get one that's more standalone, like, for example, uh, one of my favourite ones, a time travel episode, um, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. Like, I I love that episode because I love a good time travel episode. I think they do it really well in Discovery. But at the same time, even though it has, um, you know, it's reasonably standalone, it it works because cause of things that are also advancing the ongoing plot, like Stamets being able to tell what's happening, mm-hmm. that's an advancement of the plot where he's, you know, becoming more enmeshed with the mycelial network. Um, the relationship between Michael and, and Tyler, which becomes so important, is really advanced in that episode. Mm-hmm. So there's they're really doing a really great job of, of having an ongoing story, but at the same time putting those little extra bits in. But that's also kind of, you know, that's a matrix level employment there as well because it's ha- it's a Harry Mudd episode Yes, as well. So it's kind of putting all of its tendrils out into the rest of the Star Trek universe. And, that, you know, and that also, ser- I just think they're so clever because that also serves the purpose of reminding us of where Tyler came from, where they oh. met him. Yeah, yes, but also yes, the yes, timeline, yes. tying it back into the original series. But but also, you know, because that's where they originally meet him and that's why he wants revenge because they leave him with the Klingons. It reminds us of where Tyler came from and reinforces his backstory, which then makes the reveal all the more, like, delicious when yes, it happens. Yes. Oh, oh, it's so good. Yes. Um, and actually, speaking of Klingons, I also really love the Klingons in this. Yes, I do too. Oh, okay, so we, we can pepper all of this with our little facts that we Please know about do. each other about it 
Did you know that you can watch it with Klingon subtitles on Netflix? What? No, yeah. I did not know that. <laughs> Are they in the Klingon character? No, tra- no, it's- they're anglicized. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. That's yeah. all right, though, because I don't know how to read Klingon characters. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Isn't I'm gonna, that cool? Now I can learn how to speak Klingon <laughs> by watching Discovery. That's amazing. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I feel like I feel they're very cone-heady. It, it, they kind of freak me out with the size of their alien heads. Mm. It sort of feels more alien, alien, you know what I mean? Oh, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, yeah. And also, I'm always like, where's the prog rock, you know, hair Klingons? Well, see, I mean, it's interesting because someone was saying that um, Gene Roddenberry had an explanation for that because in the Star Trek The Motion Picture, there's some Klingons fairly briefly involved in the film and they look quite different from the ones from the TV show. And he explained it as saying, well, you know, not all humans look alike. Sure. Like, they come from different places. They have different ethnic backgrounds. So do Klingons, and they look different. Um, clearly, it's a bit more wildly different <laughs> for Klingons. Right. But uh, I, I think that could be part of it. I actually was thinking about that when I was re-watching the first couple of episodes. And when you see the representatives of the 12 houses, mm. there's actually quite a bit of variation in what the Klingons look like. And I'm I, I'm not 100% sure. I'd have to go back and have another look. But I think at least one of them did have something that was like hair. So... I'm not really sure. but I was uh, very much had my BDI on that whole scene, but they had the holograms of the 24 houses who had all turned up. Mm, yeah. But really you could only kind of see six of them. So, yeah. you know, you kind of extend your imagination to there's maybe like, you know, three houses who choose to rock hair or maybe they can grow hair and they just grow it at a different period of time. It becomes the fashion. Yeah. You know, I thought about this way too much. Oh, <laughs> no, look, I mean – you know, when you get up to stuff like the Trials and Tribulations episode of uh, Deep Space Nine, when, where the Deep Space Nine crew, including Worf, go back in time uh, to the original Tribbles episode, which is about uh, a Klingon disguised as a human being, by okay. the way, is, is a large part of the plot. Um, but they're looking at the other Klingons who are basically just sort of, well, they're rather distressingly kind of people in, in brown face with big moustaches. It's not the original Klingon makeup was not very great. Mm. But um but when you look at them and you look at like Worf, the next generation idea of a Klingon, uh, he kind of says, We don't talk about it. <laughs> there's and there's a whole backstory as to what happened there. There's there's like uh, in Enterprise they go into it a bit where they kind of explain there was this sort of genetic thing or a vi- I can't remember the exact explanation. But the Klingon the way Klingon's look has changed over time. So uh, again it'd probably be quite interesting to go back to the the first two episodes of Enterprise, reminding myself what they look like in Enterprise because they look a bit different in Enterprise as well. Klingons maybe are just really into evolution. Hey. <laughs> they just like to change it up every century or so. Sure, we're sure. Will you look like this now? Maybe that – well, apparently like this is really off track or well, maybe it's not. I was researching the history of body hair. <laughs> Right, mm. and apparently, like men used to be like very clean shaved, like clean shaved, shaved head, so they wouldn't have anything to grab on in battle. <laughs> so maybe like those Klingons have just gotten soft. There's not enough battle happening in the United Houses <laughs> Klingon yeah. Empire. Oh wow! So many hair theories for Klingons. Write us if you have any of your own. Yeah, we'll do a spin-off uh, podcast. Just uh, it's called Klingon Fashion Tips. <laughs> Anything else we want to talk about about the first season? I mean, there's, there's so much. What about characters? Your favourite characters in Discovery? Good or evil? Oh, well, let's start with evil. Evil. Oh, the Emperor, obviously. Well, yes. Yeah. What about you? Well, I do like, I love the Emperor. Vok, I love Vok. But also, evil Lorca. I mean, he just treads such a thin line. Like, rewatching it particularly. I was talking about ah, this with a friend the other acted. day. 
every episode you think he's like, oh, maybe he's a bit evil. And you don't know he's from the Mirror Universe yet, but he's like, maybe he's a bit evil. And then he turns it around. Like when he's first explaining to Burnham what's happening on the Discovery and she's like, you're making a weapon. It's not really cool. And he goes, let me show you what I'm actually doing. I'm making a new propulsion system. When the war's over, we can use it for exploration. And you're like, okay, oh, okay, maybe yeah. he's all right. Like, but he's just, he's, he's always ruthless, but he sort of turns it around as if he's ruthless for the right reasons. And he just keeps that pretense up so long. It's, it's beautiful. And also I just, you know, I could watch Jason Isaacs and anything. He's just such a great actor. So he's he's probably my favorite evil character. Can we? T- I think like can we talk about the Terran Mirror universe because this yes. is the thing that I have so many questions about. Okay, and yep. then I think it would kind of cover off a lot of characters. So I've written a lot of notes. So with with the Terran Empire, Terran universe, yeah, right. Everybody seems to be accounted for in terms of major characters in there, pretty much living their lives in exactly the same way. So, well, we didn't see Katrina Cornwall, the Admiral, in there, but, you know, we knew that there was an evil Lorca. We knew that there was an evil Michael mm. whose death is mysterious, as presumed dead, mm. though Michael says to the Emperor at the end, you know, will you, what, do you, you can't just bear to watch another daughter die. So what happened there? Did she yeah. kill her? So let's just go on the, the idea... I can't understand this and I can't – I feel like everything is very specifically laid in there so it has to all mean something. So right at the end, the Admiral is like, but we saw the Discovery explode and they were like, oh, no, that was the Terran Discovery because when we went to their universe, they came here. Mm. And so then she says, well, then when bad Lorca came here, then good Lorca must have swapped there. So I don't really understand. And she's like, well, n- n- a Starfleet officer on his own couldn't survive in that world. So I think there's a huge question mark over good. They, they, they go out of their way to say he's definitely dead, which I hope means he's <laughs> definitely coming back. And also with, and also like with evil Michael, maybe. Yeah, could be. Could be. I mean, I, I feel like they spend so much time on the Mirror Universe, like way more than most of the Trek shows have, that they probably won't make it a major plot point in the second season, but I, but you could bring a character from there and you wouldn't have to explain it much because we've already spent so much time there. So I'm, I'm really hoping for a return of good Lorca, but yeah, the, the mirror universe, it has that standard kind of narrative drive, which is the parallel universe is completely different from our universe or it's reversed to our universe in some way, except for the fact that all the same characters are in the same place so they can meet. Because then we sure. can just use all the same cast. Are you thinking I'm um, thinking too deeply? No, I think I think that you're right, and that they've made a lot of these decisions on purpose. But I also think that the whole point of having that kind of mirror universe is to show the same right. characters in that light. So, and it's always been the way with the mirror universe episodes is that they always feature versions of the main cast, although it's often not the entire main cast, just as it is in this. Like, we never see both versions of Lorca. We never see both versions of Michael. Uh, we never see both versions of Saru mm. or Tyler. You know, like, there's lots of people we don't see both versions of. Uh, well, we actually, that's not true. We, I guess we do see both versions yeah, see, of Vok, this, don't we? See, this is where the mechanics doesn't work for me because Saru's there and then, quote-unquote, evil Saru is still there on the Shenzhou. Oh, yeah. So oh, he hasn't right. he been swapped there, out. Yeah. And so then I'm thinking, well, does Killy get swapped out into – so I think we're thinking – I'm thinking about the mechanics too much. So let's leave that. But let's just That's say right. that there's a huge question mark over a couple of these missing people and oh, perhaps totally. Hugh 
don't know, but they weren't mm. married in that universe. Well, we, and I don't think we ever meet the mirror hue, do we? No. So, yeah, that maybe he's there. That's all I have to say, I think, about this section because there's quite a bit that I probably want to move to the yeah. coming soon section. What yeah, do we sure. think is going to happen in the second season? Do yeah. you have anything else? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I just love, you love everyone Tilly. on the show. I do love Tilly. I do love Tilly. And rewatching her, I, I'd forgotten that right, right at the end of her first sort of major episode is when she tells Michael, here's something people don't know about me. I'm going to be a captain someday. And mm. I'm just like... Yeah, you are. Mm. Like, shit, yeah, this is awesome. Like, when you see a character who's depicted as a bit, you know, clumsy or um, nervous or anxious, uh, often that's it and they're just a a joke. But Tilly's not that. Like, Mm. she has that aspect of her personality. But when she's on that first away mission to the Glen, she's the one who points her phaser into the darkness Mm. and says, show yourself. And Mm. she's totally confident in that moment. Like she is super competent as a Starfleet officer, but she's also a real human being who has foibles and anxieties. And I love that about her. Um, But I love everybody on the ship. Me too. Um, I'm really interested to see if we'll find out any more about the characters who are still around on the ship. We see them fairly often, but we don't really know who they are yet. Mm. Like um, particularly the people who also served on the Shenzhou. So like the... um, Oh, I've forgotten her name. Kayla, I think her name is the the bridge officer. The first officer, yeah. Uh, the, oh. the one with red hair. Um, and a couple of the android characters. Like, I mean, I'm interested to know a bit more about the expanded universe of Star Trek as represented in Discovery. I think Discovery is, like, not the show for that in a lot of ways. Mm. But I'm interested to find out more about it and maybe we'll see little snippets of it here and there. I do have one more thing that I just thought about that was actually what I wanted to talk about the whole time is – I really, after watching this so many times, this really is a show about trauma mm. and about post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And there's, and everybody has had these traumatic things happen to them and how it has kind of derailed their lives and it continues to derail their relationships in their lives. And there was this really amo- amazing moment with Tilly and Michael when they're on the Klingon home world and she just pulls her aside and she's like, I can see that this is going to be really hard for you and I just want you to know that you've I've you've got my back. And her face just like collapses because I'm like, oh, wow, here's this human person who was raised by Vulcans and this is probably the first time in her life that somebody has actually intuited her emotions and has showed her compassion. And I feel like that's kind of like the foundation of the entire show, Yeah, you know, is feeling feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really oh yeah, I'd forgotten that moment. That's so good. It's also a central theme of the character of Michael Burnham is her repressing and expressing her emotions and learning when to do which because she's had these two kind of she's got these two competing ideas in her head. You know, she starts out very Vulcan mm. but she becomes much more human. Um like as one of the things that I kept coming back to is, you know, how much is she really to blame for all the things she blames herself for? Mm. And she does she does like in a moment of um, hotness. By or is it mean, trauma? Or trauma. Like she kills the Takufma when she was the one who was like, it's vital we don't kill him. Mm. We have to capture him or he's going to be a martyr and the Klingon cause is going to go on forever. But as soon as he kills Giorgio, who she treats very much as a surrogate mother figure, mm. that's it. Like she's like, no. Nah, switch to kill he's dead and then realizes you can see on her face that she almost immediately realizes what she's done and it's not okay and she blames herself for the war because of that i think and that is one of many times throughout the show where you see that dichotomy and i think that's exactly what's coming back in in that last scene you're talking about 
and it may be what propels it into the future because it really is like it's it is a show about mummy, daddy, children, it's mm. family issues and identity politics. It's essentially about identity politics because she struggles so much between her humanness and her Vulcan upbringing and, you know, Tilly feels like she's a cadet away from home for the first time, struggling to kind of put all these things that she's put into practice. Mm. Saru away from his home world, one of, only one of his kind. And they're all, it's, it's about, and I guess that's a really, I feel like it's a homosexual experience, mm. you know, of like you create your family, but still at the same time, you're trying to unpack all of this shit that's happened to you you know, through all of your interactions with these people. So I really feel like the personal relationships in this show is the most complex and developed out of all of the Star Treks. And I think that's, even though it's like, it goes telenovela in terms of the crazy shit that happens, (laughs) this anchoring of the personal relationships is really what makes it so deep and rich. And I think is becoming the best Star Trek ever made, but... No, I, Let's I, see what happens. I, I'd go, I, yep, I'd go with that. And I think it's not a coincidence that we both love Voyager and now we love Discovery because while Voyager didn't have as, it didn't have that element of the trauma, um, it was well, also it did a because show. because they were all well, never going to go back and see their families online. True, they again. had a shared trauma. That's true. Mm. That they, it, it was a very much a show about a family because mm. here's all these people in the starships, their first mission, and now they've been together and they, they can't leave. They're forced to live together. And it was less about choosing a family, though, because they didn't have a choice, but making a family out of who they had. Mm. And the relationships in that show are very familial, which I love. It's one of the things I love most about it. And I think it's, yeah, I think that carries into discovery and it's that aspect of it that I really like as well. Well, I feel like we'll explore all of these themes in the shorts, in the short tracks, which we'll move on to now. I think that's a good plan because we were talking about Tilly and her competence um, and her desire to be captain. And the first of the short trek episodes, which if you're not familiar with them, are these sort of shorter episodes. They're about 15 minutes long. They explore just various different ideas. They dropped one of them a month in um, in the lead up to the new season. And the first one, uh, Runaway, is all about Tilly. Lovely Tilly. She just gets an adventure on her own. She's like, what is that cartoon movie, Brave? Yeah, she's got the same hair. (laughs) She's the lady from Brave. Yeah, she's got the same hair as Merida, that's true. It's a beautiful story. She finds this alien who's stowed away aboard the Discovery and helps her out. Well, and also has to, she's coming from a life of rigidity in terms of Starfleet Academy. Mm. And we see a first character development in terms of when to go against protocol and yeah. what is what is ethical, what is moral, which is actually really the basis the basis of a lot of sci fi and Star Trek. Yeah. So seeing her sort of you're like, oh, okay, so she can do this, you know, she's not entirely by the books. Yeah. I think that that's setting her up as a a fully developed character now going into season two. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was great. And like I think also it set the tone for the short treks where they're primarily about a very small number of like usually two or three characters. Well, I was going to say they're about character development. I was like, what about the ship? And I'm like, well, no, that's character development as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because the second one, Calypso is probably my favorite of, of the four. Um, although I like them all. Um, but it's set, it's just set in the future. It's written by Michael Chabon. I know. Who's apparently I found out he's actually in the writer's room for the season two. Of oh, Discord. wow. Oh, no, he's in the writer's room for the new Picard show. Oh. That's right. Either or, it doesn't matter. Yeah, Sounds no, great. I'm into it. Yeah. Um, 
And it's, yeah, it's set a thousand years in the future aboard the Discovery. There's nobody there except a computer that's like running Zora. it. Zora, yeah. Who has become sentient. And um, she just, she rescues a guy in a life pod and wakes him up. And uh, it's all about their relationship. And it's sort of told in these little slices. You're not quite sure how long he's there, but it's clearly a bit of time. Mm. And they develop this lovely relationship. Um, well, because she won't technically release him because she's not, she's not supposed, to. supposed to. Well, she's she was reticent to give him because there's like one shuttle, oh, one shuttle that's right. available, but it's it's never been flown, and she's not sure if it'd make it all the way back to his home world. So she's not willing to let him risk it because he might die, even though that's clearly what he wants to do because he wants to get back home because he's flo- he's fled a war mm. and his family is still back there, um, and it's just a really lovely exploration of. Just a really interesting. I mean, it gave me. It reminded me of the film Her, mm. which I I know you did not like. No, but I did. Okay. Uh, but I think I think it, it, maybe for you it was like a nice version of that film. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to go into that. Uh, Calypso, I think, uh, explores this relationship where this artificial intelligence Zora. Is is a person. She's a person. Um, I don't think you know the way she's, she's named portrayed. Herself. She's, she's named given herself. herself a name. She's been out there for a thousand years, developing her knowledge, and she clearly feels feelings. Yes, absolutely. You know? And she feels she feels some feelings yeah. for uh, dude. Yeah. Uh, and, and and what a pair of actors as well. They're so good in this. For two actors who presumably are not in anything else, uh, who've just been brought in to do um, this one episode, this one mini episode. They re- they just nail it. They're so good. Uh, I really love that episode. I just love that it was so out there. Yeah. And I love, I do love seeing the ship as a person because the ship is a character. I mean, it's not so much, it hasn't been so much in this first season of Discovery, but the ship is very omnipresent, mm. particularly in Voyager, you know. Um, so maybe that's also coming as well because it's- we haven't really heard the ship's voice much. In- yeah. And it's so rarely personified, although Zora seems to be separate. Like, she always, she never seems to think of the ship as her. She sort of feels like she's in charge of the ship, which is a subtle difference. Because there's there's an episode of Next Gen, and I've forgotten which one it is, where the Enterprise starts to become sentient and self-aware. It's interesting. I, I just, I love it. I also love what it potentially does to the timeline. It's where, did, where where were they abandoned? What is a thousand years into the future? A thousand years from when as well? We yeah. don't know. Like a thousand years from the end of when Discovery ends? From sometime in the second season? Like what happens? We don't know. And is this is this something or is it is it nothing? Is it just going to be like a little dot on someone's Star Trek timeline, yeah. presumably in a bracket somewhere? So I love that. It's interesting that the first two episodes of the short treks feel like they could just have been ideas that somebody had for a story that could reuse the Discovery set. But the third and fourth ones feel like, oh, this might indicate something that's happening in season two because they're using stuff that you wouldn't just make for a 15-minute episode. Case in point, The Brightest Star, the third episode. Oh, yes. Your favourite, the Kelpians. Well, you know what? This was you actually love Saru. My... You love Saru. I love Saru. He's one of my favourite characters. But actually, this is my least favorite of the the short treks. Oh, really? I enjoyed him in it. I enjoyed I enjoyed actually all the performances. I really loved the bit at the end where he meets Giorgio and goes off. Like I thought that was lovely. But I felt like for an episode where they're like, let's explore Saru's backstory and where he's from and what his people are like, it just raised more questions than it answered for me. Like it didn't. Like it, what? It didn't feel entirely consistent with what we knew. Like Saru always has talked about how his species were a prey species 
evolved to detect the coming of death, which kind of indicated that they were being constantly hunted down on their planet. And well, he can run he, really he does fast say that, as well. He does say that, like, we were the equivalent of cattle. Yeah, yeah. But it's sort of like the way he speaks about it, yeah, it felt like they were being horribly subjugated and they all sure. hated it and it was awful. But then when we see his planet, they're all just like, yeah, it's part of the balance. Like, they have this whole spiritual belief around it. And I mean, you could argue that maybe this is what cows think when they're in an abattoir. Well, you know, they're waiting. You know, they're like, oh, the great thing is coming to take us away or whatever. But they're all very calm about it and it doesn't quite gel with, like, their biology or the way that it's been talked about before. And then there's the technology level mismatch. Like Star Trek, actually, it has has a weird habit of whenever someone's a pre warp civilization, they don't show you like the equivalent of twentieth century Earth. They yeah, show it's you just the equivalent all of like people in huts. Yeah, it's yeah. It's like we don't. You don't have to be that you know lacking in technology to not be a warp civilization, mm. because you know there's this very advanced bit of technology. It's a floating pillar that transports his people away to be presumably eaten. Although no one in the episode seems to know what happens to them, mm. they just know that they go. Mm. Um, so, maybe Saru only finds out after he leaves. Who can tell? But he knows something's up. He doesn't believe that it's right. And so, when a bit of technology falls off it, he uses it to communicate with the outside universe and contacts Starfleet. And in particular, Philippa Giorgio, who at this point in her career is not a captain yet. Mm. So, it's set quite some time before Discovery. And I like the basic storyline, but I just felt like, this is weird. Like, it was written by someone who did not write any of the other bits of Saru talking about his background. So, I enjoyed it, but I felt it was a bit incongruous. And I'll be interested to see, because I expect they did not make three other Kelpian, like, masks and uh, that's outfits. That's your prediction. Just for this. Like, I think we probably are going to go back and visit the Kelpians in season two. And I'm excited for that. I'd be really interested to see where that goes. Well, that's where my big question mark kind of hangs over this. And I'm sure someone or many people have written about it at length that I can go and research later. But I just don't see how this fits into the prime directive. So she says, yeah, you can come with us, but you can never come back. So is it because he's been able to communicate outside yeah, of his world? She, she says that she's gotten special dispensation because he has demonstrated an understanding of post-warp level technology because the interstellar communication device that he's using is clearly as sophisticated as the kind of technology you need to travel at warp speed. I, that's what I gathered from what she said. It's, and it so she got special feels permission. very vague. Yeah. It, it's, and kind of... You know, so I'm like, I'm going to secretly come down and take you away, right? But no one on your planet can ever know, and we're not going to. And also, it feels super. Uh, the whole situation where clearly the people eating the Kelpians, and I've forgotten what they're called, but they have a post-warp civilization. The so Baul. The Baul, yeah. So it feels to me like Starfleet should get bloody involved. So they should be saying like. You have post what we want to contact you, and then we want to also say, can you maybe not eat these like sentient beings who live on the planet below? Like that's not really okay. I don't think they're allowed to interfere culturally. Well, they they if it's a post warp civilization, they can talk to them on that level. And Star Trek characters do it all the time. Like every second civilization that wow. Voyager meets, they're like, what you're doing is ridiculous. <laughs> you know. So yeah, I don't. I think that's another wormhole. I just don't really want to go down. I actually sure. really enjoyed the episode. Hopefully, there will be more Kelpians because, as we saw in the Terran universe, they were also slaves and food. So being eaten by Terrans. Yeah. Mm. Well, that brings us to episode four of Short Treks, though. The Escape Artist. Oh, this was a lot of fun. Oh my god, Rain Wilson. Ah, oh, just nailing Who it. Who knew? He's having the best time of his life. Totally. Oh. 
totally reinvented my idea of him as an actor. Yeah. 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 And he directed this one too. Wow. I didn't so know that. He, he knows what he's doing. He didn't write it, but he directed it. And I did not see the ending of this coming. <gasps> Me neither. So it's Harry Mudd. Like he's clearly running a con. And like you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. There's 15 minutes of this. It can't just be him trying to get out of being captured for 15 minutes. And sure enough, he is running a con, and what a con it is! It's so good. The payoff is so good. He's got a he's got an AI robot and Harry Mud farm going. Oh no! He's oh. got just little little Harry Muds ready to go out on Griff's left, right, and center. And they seem they seem quite sophisticated until they kind of get rumbled, and then that breaks their programming, and they quickly become not very sophisticated at all. This was actually my favorite one. It was yeah. really peppy. It was it it was. It didn't feel rushed, but it still had like a lot of information in there. Yeah. It had a great twist at the end. I felt like I really understood more of the character. And also there's going to be this huge question mark every time we encounter Harry Mudd now. From now on, it's like, is he real? Is, is he a robot? Is real one? Yeah. yeah, that's great, isn't it? Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was great. I really loved it. Shall we discuss very briefly our thoughts for the next season? I feel like we've captured a lot of it in the rest of the discussion. but Yeah, let's. What do you think is going to happen in season two, or what do you what do you hope? Well, is we actually have had a little bit of foreshadowing or actual information about this. So mm. there's the original trailer, and now there's this second trailer, which leaks information that was leaked at like a comic con or something earlier oh, in yes, the year. Oh yes, that's about, right. This was uh, scenes that were cut from the finale of the first season, where oh. Giorgio is recruited by this thing called Black Ops. We don't know what it is. We don't know what they do. Is it Section 31? Yes. We, and you know what? They seed that in the very first episode. Uh, well, not the very first. Again, the third episode, because they're walking along the corridor, the prisoners with um, Burnham, and they see the guy with the, the black the badge. The black badge. And you're like, that's got to be Section 31. Come on. And if listen, if you're not familiar with Section 31, they crop up a lot in Voyager and Enterprise, particularly Enterprise, they're like the yeah the Black Ops section of Starfleet. So that's that's really super exciting just to know that Michelle Yeoh is going to continue to be in it. She oh. has just been phenomenal. Yeah, so good. Phenomenal. The fight scenes, the fight acting, what a babe. Yeah. Um, the thing that I'm actually most looking forward to is getting to know uh, Christopher Pike, Commander Christopher Pike, Captain mm-hmm. Christopher Pike, who was the original captain of the Star Trek Enterprise, who yes. we never really know knew anything about. And Tig Notaro is in it. Oh, yeah, I keep forgetting that. I, I have no idea what her character's going to be. It's going to be great to find so out. So exciting. I'm pretty excited to see what Spock is like. We've got a new Spock. That's pretty exciting. I mean, I, I don't want to just get excited about the stuff that's, um, you know, old Star Trek stuff coming back because – the original series is my is the, is the Star Trek I'm least familiar with. You mm. know, I'm mostly familiar with the movies, right? So I'm I'm enjoying the idea that here's like another way into the origins of those characters and those situations. But also, I I th- I haven't seen the full second trailer, but I've seen a bit of it, and I'm pretty sure that Tyler is in it, which means Tyler's coming back. What? I'm pretty sure. I might have been imagining that, but I thought he was. That would be amazing. And didn't so, you say that Spock is being called Hipster Spock now? It's because he's got the beard, yeah. <laughs> he's got the beard. I definitely want more gay love. Hopefully that is being heralded by Tignataro. Well, I, I kind of, my when I first heard Spock was coming, I was like, oh, maybe maybe Spock and Stamets will get it on. Dude. And then I was like, Spock's not getting on with anyone. He's just a bloody Vulcan. He's just 
No, the Vulcans have, you know, their seven-year Yeah, and he's not due for it for he's not- <laughs> ages. Actually, is it, is it only seven years? Is I think it- it's seven years, yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah. well, maybe he is due for it because it's 10 years before Star Trek. It could be 14 <laughs> years before it happens in the TV show. I don't know. One more thing that I'm sort of like question mark or that I would love to see because we've seen a lot of the aliens that we know, mm. some busted up robot people that we've never seen before. Yeah. Um, but also like question mark over the Romulans. I don't know oh. where they come into Star Trek, but I mean, already there's contact with Vulcan, so they must be aware of the Romulans. And when, um, when Michael goes into the spore drive chamber, one of the places that she sees is the council chambers on Romulus. Oh. So, so we know that the Romulans are around but yeah. i don't know if there's a neutral zone i don't know what the deal is i think from memory and my memory this is a bit hazy because it's what i've read about and not seen in the original series there's kind of like a surprise reveal that these people aren't vulcans they're romulans Ooh, yes i think that that's right so i think if there are any romulan if there is any romulan stuff in this it'll be it'll have to be sort of kept secret somehow i think we can definitely look forward to lots of body swap Freaky Friday shenanigans. (laughs) You reckon? Yeah. Okay. And maybe like a bit more spice, maybe some romance. Yeah. Fingers crossed. You'd hope so. I hope hope Michael finds some new romance. I hope Stamets finds some new romance. I I can't... I know we talked about this again. I just don't know what's going to happen with Hugh. I mean, obviously, Hugh still exists as a sort of entity in his mind like made in the, in the real network. by the network. Yeah. But whether or not they're still using the spore drive is going to be a bit of a question mark. And what happens to the spore drive? Because there's no mycelial network travel in like any of the other Star Trek series. So clearly there's some reason why they don't use it anymore. It'll be interesting to see if that comes in in this season or if they sort of push that off to later. Uh, because I, I believe Kurtzman, who's now taken over the running of the show has said that it's going to sort of merge more into what you what we know of Star Trek canon. I hope they don't do that too much. I mean, I think one of the great strengths of Discovery as a show is that it just went its own way. I agree. Um, and they can explain it all away by it being a science vessel and, mm. you know, it's all kind of classified. I mean, they even go to lengths to say at the end it's like, we're all in agreement. This is completely classified yeah. and nobody can ever know about the Terran universe. Yeah. You know, so I do think that that's its strength. Yeah, totally. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm interested to see that. But, you know, I, as I, I may have said before in the podcast, I'm a, I'm a continuity nerd. I love that stuff and I can't wait to see how the show explains it. I can't wait to see how fans explain it. And I just can't wait to see what kind of crazy stuff they add into mm. the Star Trek universe that then we have to sort of figure out how does this fit? Because I, I love that. Mm. I mean, that's why I watch these shows. Um, I love the creation of this mythology and the expansion of one that already exists and has so much in it. It's just, it's great. It's good fun. Yes. Well, that brings us to the end of this, our second introductory episode of Rediscovery, which means, of course, from next episode, we're going to be talking about new Discovery cards. Yeah, my God. Oh, so exciting. We're looking forward to it. We hope you are too, and we hope you'll join us then. But until then, live long and prosper. You've been listening to Rediscovery. All links to creatives are in the show notes or on our website, rediscoverypodcast.com. We'd love to connect with you. Please add us on Twitter and Facebook at Rediscovery Pod. Rediscovery is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. Find more entertainment for your ears at splendidchaps.com.